1 John chapter 2. And this morning, the title of the message, as you probably see behind me, is This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. And I think that that's an important place for us to always come back to. The things that we know, and how do we know them? Obviously, it's because God has told us that these things are true. And, and so this morning, we're going to start in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and then we'll pray. But beginning in verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, once again we ask that you would anoint and fill each one of us to freshen anew with your Holy Spirit, that you would grant to us your understanding and discernment, that we would be able to rightly divide your word, that you would give me your words to speak and not my own. We pray that everything that, that you desire to speak to us this morning, that we would be attentive to that that we would desire to be challenged, that we would desire to be encouraged, that we would desire to be changed. Whatever it is that is your will for our lives this morning, we pray that that would be accomplished in us and through us. And so we give you this time and we ask and pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So one of the first questions that, that we, we often hear when we're greeting somebody, especially in this culture, and even this morning we had it happen, it's either how are you doing or how do you feel? How do you feel this morning? And asking about feelings, it's a very commonplace thing for us. It's very natural in this culture, honestly, even when we don't really care. Sometimes we don't even want to know the answer. It's just like saying hello. We, instead of saying hello, for some reason in our culture, in our society, well, how are you doing? But we don't really want to get into it. We don't want to hear if you're doing badly. We don't want to hear about all the things that are going on. It's just a question. But the reality is that that is a very, very big question. Because how do you feel has a number of different answers because it's a number of different questions all at once. How do you feel could be mental, it could be physical, it could be spiritual, it could be emotional in nature. How do you feel is such a big thing. And honestly, if you're anything like me, I generally feel a lot worse than I actually am. I feel a lot worse than I actually am. At any given time of any day or any week, I could be feeling mentally taxed, physically exhausted, spiritually dry or emotionally drained. And if you combine two or more of those, I could very well describe that feeling as being overwhelmed or something worse, maybe even exceedingly sorrowful as we're going to see later. And yet in all of that feeling, I am in a constant state of being blessed with the privilege to be overcome with joy. So even though I might feel overwhelmed, even though I might feel miserable, I'm still being blessed. I'm still being blessed and I still have the opportunity to be filled with joy because joy is so much deeper than anything else that I could feel. It's deeper than an emotion. It's a spiritual thing to have joy. And that joy is because of the presence of God in my life and the hope that he has given to me. And I suppose that there's always been this struggle within mankind between thinking and feeling. 
Some of us are a little bit more skewed towards the thinking, very analytical, very logical. You like to have things in order. You like to have things in place. You like to read the instructions when you get something new. You like to go from step one to step two and, and have everything ordered. Some of us are a little bit more emotional and feeling. We wear our emotions on our sleeves and we just want to do. We, we get excited about something, we get passionate, and then we, we kind of throw the rules behind. We don't look at the instructions. We're just so excited about what's about to take place that we run out and do it. And then some of us are an even mix of the two, a little bit more balanced. But I would suggest to you that in our culture, in our society, and especially inside of the church today, there is an overemphasis on how we feel. And it's definitely apparent, it's very, very clear. And one of the attitudes that has sprung out of that is the mentality that says, if it feels good, then do it. If it feels good, then it must be okay or it must be right. And obviously the implied fallout on the flip side of that equation is if it doesn't feel good, then don't do it. Or if I don't feel like doing it, then I shouldn't have to do it. And I seem to be having this battle a lot lately with my eight-year-old daughter, especially when it comes to something that isn't fun or that she deems to be boring. And just like most children and a lot of us even today, she has a great dislike for things that aren't fun. And really, that's just the way that she describes something that she doesn't want to do. She wants to feel excited, she wants to feel happy, she wants to be pumped up about whatever it is that's happening, about going back to school. That was such a struggle this past week. It was such a battle, getting her prepared, getting her excited about it, getting her ready. And there were so many times that it was a battle because summer was so much fun and, and school, even though she enjoyed it all throughout last year, for some reason in her mind, she had this fear, this trepidation, and, and so it became this battle between, do I have to go? Do I have to go? And the challenge here isn't that I don't want her to feel those things. I do want her to be happy. I do want her to be excited. I want her to be pumped up about things in her life. But the challenge is that my wife and I, as her parents, have the responsibility to raise our kids, to teach them how to function, and to function well, even when they don't feel like it. And that's not to say, again, that all feeling is bad and all thinking is good, but sometimes, just like in my daughter, how we feel is allowed to have way too much of an effect on the way that we think and the way that we do. And so that brings us to our first point this morning, which is the battle between knowing and feeling, the battle between knowledge and what I feel. What feels good to the flesh is almost always at odds with what we know is of God. And that's what we just read in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. To be just completely engulfed in the things of the world, to be totally wrapped up in them. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And if you notice here, a lot of the things that we're talking about have to do with feeling. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I've shared before many times that if sin didn't feel good, it wouldn't be tempting. It would not be tempting. I mean, really, really think about that. If you didn't feel like sinning, it would be an easy battle. It wouldn't even be a battle. You would just, well, I know that that's wrong. I know that that's not of God. I know that that goes against 
his word, so we don't do it. But when we fail, when we fall into temptation, when we sin, why did we sin? We sinned because we felt like sinning. That's what it comes down to is we knew better, but we just felt like sinning. We wanted to, to scratch that itch. We wanted to, to satisfy that desire. And that's what, exactly what John is talking about here. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And it's not to say that, that we can't enjoy the things in this life, that we can't enjoy our time here on the earth. But we need to make sure that the things that we are enjoying, the things that we are partaking in, that these are things that God has allowed us to partake in. That these things are, are not going to take us away from him. But that we are constantly trying to spend time in fellowship with him. And so what happens when we rely too much on what feels good, on what we want to do, instead of what we know we ought to do? What feels good is often the flesh, and, and what we know to be good are the spiritual things of God. And so we, when we do that, when we allow what we feel to impact us too much, oftentimes we act like the world, and we lose effectiveness in our relationship with God, because we're not hearing from him clearly, and we also lose effectiveness in the example of our witness. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, Paul writes and he says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. The rest of the Gentiles walk, that's another way of saying that you should be different from the world. You should not walk like the world. You should not fulfill the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. All of these things do not walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. And so he goes through this passage and he says that you should no longer walk like that. You should no longer be desiring just to fulfill those parts of your, your character, those parts of your, your life. You know, in Galatians, he, he writes even more extensively about it. He talks about the, the things of the flesh and walking in the spirit. And what a big contrast it is. And he goes through these huge lists of these are all types of things. Not these are all of them, but these are types of things that the flesh likes to fulfill. And these are the things that the spirit likes to fulfill. But here he's going through this passage and he continues on in verse 20 and he says, but you have not so learned Christ. He says that you are supposed to be different. We are supposed to be different. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And so he goes through and he says that you haven't learned Christ like that. If indeed you have heard him, if you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have read his word, if you have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, then you need to put those things off. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you this morning, after you came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, after you entered into this relationship, had this switch that just turned off in you that you no longer had a desire to sin ever? That didn't happen for me, and if it happened for you, that's awesome. But it did not happen for me. 
It is still a constant struggle. It is a constant battle between the flesh and the spirit. It is something that I deal with daily and moment by moment. And there are times that you don't even see it coming. Sure, there are times that we plan it out and and we put ourselves in situations that we ought not to be in. But there are other times that you just get blindsided by a temptation. And it is a battle. It is a struggle. And that's why we are encouraged so often to be aware. To be aware of everything that's going on. To walk circumspectly. I love that word that Paul uses. He says, to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. And why does he say that? To walk circumspectly, it has its root in in the the word circumference. and, And to be constantly aware of everything that's going on around you. To have your head on a swivel, if you will, to be aware so that you are not caught off guard. And so he's talking about all of this, that we have not so learned Christ, and that it is something that we have to work at. But if you notice the phrases here in this long passage, the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened because of ignorance or a lack of knowledge, the blindness of their heart, past feeling. They have learned Christ to be taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There is such a great emphasis in this passage on knowing the truth, on knowing Jesus, and allowing this truth, allowing this relationship to transform us, to affect our actions, to affect the way that we think, not just the way that we feel, but to affect the way that we think. How many of you here today have read the passage where Jesus exhorts his followers to go out and make disciples? We call it the the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And notice what he tells them to do in the context of that. He says, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And notice that there is no mention of feelings here. There is knowing the the teaching, and there is doing to observe all the things that I have commanded you. He doesn't talk about the feelings. He doesn't talk about go and make disciples and make them feel some kind of an emotional high. Go and make them feel that Saturday night retreat experience. He says to go and to teach and to teach them to do what is right. And again, it's not to say that feelings or the heart are completely uninvolved in the Christian life, but it does show us how important Jesus believes that knowing and doing are in being disciples. And I would suggest to you that the feelings have to be rooted and grounded in the things that we know. Just the way that the things that we do need to be rooted and grounded in the things that we know. The things that we know, that's where we start. We know who God is. We have been given the privilege to know who God is. We've been given the opportunity. We've been given the word of God so that we can continue to get to know him better. And that is where all of the other stuff should flow out of. That knowing, and not in an academic sense, but in a spiritual sense. You know, Jesus talked about it. The the disciples talked about it. Paul talked about it. That it's a spiritual thing. that, That it's something that the Holy Spirit comes and he helps us to learn these things, and he reminds us of these things. 
And so it's a spiritual knowledge, but it's a knowledge that then all of the worship comes out of, that, that the feeling comes out of, that the doing comes out of, because we know him. What about when Jesus is talking to Peter after the resurrection in John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15, he says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And so we've talked about this before. The first two times Jesus is asking him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? Something so much deeper than all of the other kinds of love. Do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? And the first two times Peter responds by saying, Jesus, I phileo you. You know that I love you but I love you as, as a good friend, almost like a brother, that I, I love you deeply. That's where we get the, the concept brotherly love or Philadelphia from this word phileo. And so he says, I love you as a very, very good friend. And so the third time Jesus drops the, the level of the question down to where Peter's answer was, and he says, okay, Peter, I've asked you twice, do you agape me? But now I'm, the third time he says, Peter, do you phileo me? And this third time that Jesus asked, Peter, Peter's grieved that he asked him. But he responded the same way the third time, except a little bit more emphatically. He says that, that you know. And I, I love that he says that, that you know all things. You know that I love you. Even in response to this question, the, a question about love, which, which so many times we talk about in the, the context of how we feel. Well, I feel loved, or I feel like I love this person. And yet, Peter, in his response to Jesus, is saying, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Not that you feel that, that I, I love you, but you know that I love you. And notice Jesus commands to Peter to feed and to tend his sheep. There's no mention of making Jesus' sheep feel warm and fuzzy inside. Notice that. He says to feed and to tend. There's also no mention of making sure that the sheep had some kind of an overwhelming emotional experience. There's also no mention of getting the sheep all pumped up and excited so that they can ride this emotional wave until the next church service or the next devotional or the next Bible study. He says to feed and to tend. And so these commands that Jesus is giving to Peter are to teach them the word of God. To feed them, to teach them the word of God, to share with them the life of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, the attributes of God, to teach them, to feed them, to share with them. And that is the same thing for us, that we have been given that example that we are to then take out and to share. And he says to tend or to keep, which is to protect them from the things that would pull them away from the truth of God. 
It doesn't talk about making sure that they feel good, making sure that they feel excited, making sure that they feel happy. It's all about teaching, about knowing, about protecting, about guarding. You know, as Paul writes to Timothy, it's about guarding this thing that was committed unto you. Then later on, as he's writing to Timothy again, he, he says, for I know the things that I have committed and I know whom I have committed them to. I know it. I don't feel it. I know it. And because I know it, now I feel something. Now I feel the safety and the security and the peace of God because I know that he has promised it. And I know that his promises are true. I know that his word is true. And so that's where it comes down to. And it brings us all the way back to the, really the beginning of our relationship with Jesus Christ, which is our, our second point, to know and to believe in the word of God and in Jesus. Believing and knowing in Jesus is so much more important than feeling something about it. In John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, we find one of those most often quoted passages in all of the word of God in John 3, 16. But backing up a little bit in verse 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Not whoever feels some kind of emotional, overwhelming experience, but whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And so he says, whoever believes in Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have everlasting life. And then you get all the way down to verse 21, and it says, but he who does the truth comes to the light. He who does the truth. Well, how can you do the truth unless you know the truth? And so again, we start with what we know, and that should impact how we feel, and what we know should impact what we do. What we know should impact these things. Jesus, in, in John 14, verses 1 through 7, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. So what, what does that mean? Wait, you don't start there. Like, I don't come in to, to pray with my kids at night and to read them a story as they're getting ready to go to bed and I don't say, okay, don't have nightmares. Like that's not where you start. You start there when somebody has already said, I'm, I'm scared, I'm worried, I, I'm, I'm concerned. That's when you come to, well, don't be afraid, don't worry. So what he's saying here is let not your heart be troubled because there is some fear, there's some anxiety, there are some worries that are taking place in their lives. And so he starts here, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Not that you feel something, not that you feel warm and fuzzy inside, not that you feel great, not that you're excited, not that you're pumped, but you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And isn't that what we talk about so often? Even the world talks about it at a memorial service, at a funeral service, that they're in a better place. Well, how do you know they're in a better place? You know because you know the truth of the word of God. And the word of God, Jesus himself says that there is a better place. That's what he's talking about here. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you and that he's going to come and get us and take us to that place with him. And that is the better place, right? That's the hope that we have. The hope that there is something so much greater beyond this life, that even though we get to experience this relationship with Jesus Christ here on the earth, that there is an, uh, just an extra part of that that's going to take place after this life. Because when we get to that place, all the muck and the grime, all of the, the, the physical frailties and shortcomings, all of the temptations, all of the sin, all of that stuff is going to be gone. And it's just going to be the beauty of that relationship with God for all of eternity, and that is a better place. That's a great hope, that's a glorious hope. It's something for us to look forward to. But in verse five, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, this is another one of those often quoted passages. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. And so there's so much there, but, but for the purposes of, of our study, our time this morning, he says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. And notice that there is not really any discussion of the feelings. He's the way and the truth. He talks about knowing the way. And then he says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. So he is the way. It's the, the blueprint, the, the, the instructions, the directions, the way to get there. He is the way. He is the truth. There isn't anything outside of him that could be true. He is the truth. And he is the life. He's the way that, that we are supposed to live. As we're going to see a little bit later, and, and we've already spoken about a little bit, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the life too. Not just the, the life that, that we look to and, oh, okay, well, that's great. But he is the life. He is the, the fulfillment of all of these things that we needed. So many times there are, there are these places, and we talk about it after the fact, that Jesus filled this void in my heart that I didn't know existed. Jesus fills all of that. That there are these places that, that so many times in the world and sometimes even inside the church that we try to fill that place that is reserved for Jesus. That God has created us with this void that can only be filled by him. And we try to fill it with all these other things. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. And we try to fill it with all these other things and we never feel fulfilled. He is the life. So he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, if you had known me, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know me. And you know him and you've seen him. When we know something, we do something about it. It changes the way that we think about it. 
You know, I, I can't tell you how many times that, that that is how I have learned, is by doing something the wrong way, and now I know not to do that again because it didn't go well. And so I know, and, and it affects the way that I do things. It affects the way I, I do life going forward. And so Jesus talked about the very same concept. In Matthew 27, verses 24 and 25, he says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. He says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, because if we know it to be true, if we believe it to be true, then we need to be doing something about it. It has to change how we live, change how we act, and how we feel. And so he says, whoever hears these things and knows them, believes them, trusts in them, it affects you, and then you do them, and then you are like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And I love the picture here as we're going to see a, a comparison, a contrast, because there are there are two different types of people, but notice that the storm hits them both. You know, sometimes we're tempted inside the body of Christ to go out and to share, share Jesus in a way that isn't really fully true. We go out and we share the gospel and we tell people in a sense that, well, just come to Jesus and all your problems go away. I, again, I, if that has happened to you, that is amazing. But that has not happened to me. I came to Jesus and honestly, I think I've had more struggles, more problems. The enemy has attacked harder after I came to Jesus. It's not that all my problems went away. It's that now there is a true and powerful solution to every problem that I will ever face. And it's a solution, it's a person, that's Jesus Christ that I didn't know before. And so it's not that the problems went away. It's not that, that now everything is just hunky-dory and, you know, roses and rainbows. It's that now when I am going through it, when the storm is beating upon me, and, and notice the verbiage here. He says, the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you have felt that before? That you have just had the, the storms of this life blow and beat on you. And yet, if we are founded upon the rock, if we hear these sayings, we know them, we believe them to be true, and we allow them to transform us, to change us, we do them, then we withstand the storm. For it's founded upon the rock. We are founded upon the rock. But the contrast comes in verse 26 when he says, But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on this house. It's the exact same thing that happened to the wise man that built on the rock. But the outcome was totally different because this house fell and great was its fall. And how many times have we experienced that? When we fail to do the things that we know we ought to do, great has been our fall. Great has been our fall. And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. Great has been my fall in my relationship with Jesus Christ. When I fail to do the things that I know I ought to. When I fail to do the things that I know I ought to. 
When we know about something but we don't believe it, then we don't do anything with it. But if we know and believe, then our lives reflect it even when we don't feel like it. The easiest way, and this is, might be a little bit oversimplistic, but the easiest way that I could describe this to you is that if, if I come to you and I say, hey, I, I really want to meet with you, I really want to spend some time with you, just, just you and I, just so that I can, can get to know you a little bit better. And so we set up a time and we're going to go and, and, and we're going to go meet at Starbucks at, at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And we make plans and we set it up and, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. And then you show up at 10 o'clock. And I don't show up, I don't call, I don't text, I don't let you know that I'm not coming. The next time I see you, I don't apologize for not being there. I, I just pretend like it didn't happen. Well, who, whose failure was it in that, that we didn't have that time of fellowship? Was it you who showed up at 10 o'clock according to everything that we had talked about? Or was it me? Well, obviously it was me. And that is the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. He is always there. He is always there. He always shows up. You know, there's this phrase in, in Christianese nowadays. There's, there's always catchphrases within the body of Christ. And one of them right now is he, he showed up, that Jesus showed up, God showed up, the Holy Spirit showed up. And I get it. I understand the concept. But the reality is that he always shows up. Like, you don't have to worry about that. It's not about is God going to show up. It's about are you going to show up? Am I going to show up? And the reality of it, in our relationship, just one-on-one, -on -one, don't raise hands, don't, don't look guilty, because I'm sure that most, if not all of us, are guilty. When we fail to spend time with God, it's because we didn't feel like it. It's because we didn't feel like it. And this is the second time that, that I've had to share this from the pulpit this weekend. And both times, it starts bringing tears to my eyes because of me. Not because of what I know about any of you and your relationship with Jesus, but because of the things that I know about my relationship with Jesus. Because of the shortcomings, the failures that I have. Because of the times that I didn't feel like it and I chose to do something else because I put something else as more important than my relationship with Jesus Christ in that moment. Because I decided that I didn't want to spend time reading the word that, in that moment. Because I didn't want to spend that time praying. I wanted to go do something else. Because I didn't feel like it. The same things that I'm trying to explain and to teach and impart to my children as I shared with you. It's the same lessons that God is still trying to teach me. That I have to learn to function well, to do the things that I know I ought to do, even when I don't feel like it. And there are times, if we are honest with ourselves, that we don't feel like doing the right thing. It doesn't always feel good knowing the truth. It doesn't always feel good. There are times that it's painful because of things that other people do to us because of, of the, the mockery or, or whatever else takes place in other countries, and sometimes e even here in this country, that there's physical repercussions for, for believing in Jesus Christ, for knowing the truth, for standing in the truth, for, for living out the truth. It doesn't always feel good. There are times that, that it feels better to do something else in the short term. In the long term, it always feels better as well to do the things of God. 
But in that moment, in that instant, sometimes we allow the feelings to overwhelm what we know ought to happen. And especially as it, as it relates to worship and, and congregational worship especially, we need to learn that the things that we know about God are what fuel the worship time that we have. The things that we know about God, that should fuel the worship of God definitely more than whatever feelings might be going on. You know, I, I had the opportunity to listen to a Bible study or at least a, a clip from a Bible study this week, and it was this concept between knowing and feeling as it relates to worship. And, and I, I didn't necessarily agree with every single thing that he said, but the, the gist of it was so true. That sometimes we, we come into this place and we are not ready to worship. We are not prepared to worship. How many of you, again, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever come in to, to worship together, whether it's here in this fellowship or another fellowship, it's a Bible study, or a women's study, a men's study, a, a retreat, but you have shown up to a place that there has been an appointed time set and we are going to gather together and worship together as one body in Christ, as one family, that we are going to worship God and we just kind of feel blah about it. We feel so blah about it that maybe we don't even show up at the appointed time. We, you know, it's, it's just like the previews at the movies. We'll get there for the important part. But isn't worshiping God important? And it's not to say that the only way that you can worship God is by, by coming here and singing songs together with us. But that's one opportunity. That's one way that we as a family, as a body, can worship God together in unison, in one accord, in unity. And yet sometimes we feel blah about it. And sometimes, it, almost all the time, is because of something that we feel. Well, I, I'm, I'm tired. I woke up late. I got to church late. I, I had a fight with my spouse or I had a fight with my kids. We, we're struggling with something in our lives. Maybe God hasn't answered a prayer or he didn't answer the prayer the way that we expected or the way that we wanted. Maybe we're dealing with some kind of an illness or an injury. But whatever it is, there's all kinds of different ways that we can come into this place and not be prepared to worship God, not be focused upon him and his glory, his majesty, his righteousness, his holiness, his tremendous grace, mercy, and love extended towards us. All the things that God is, they kind of get pushed to the side because of whatever's going on in me. And I just show up and I feel blah. Or maybe we, we did a really good job and we, we showed up and we were intent on, on worshiping God. We were, we were prepared, we were ready, we were going to be attentive, we, we were set. You know, we, we had even gone past just the knowing and now it had fueled this worship and now we were feeling like worshiping and then we got here and we got knocked out of that place. You know, somebody stole your parking place. You know, the, the music style wasn't to your preference. The, the people on the stage were too spiritual or maybe they weren't spiritual enough. Maybe they, they weren't talented enough or maybe they were too talented and they were showing off too much. Maybe you didn't like the keys that were sung or, or whatever else and you get knocked out of that place. Maybe it wasn't even on stage. Maybe it was somebody around you. That somebody in your eye line was just a little too showy, a little too expressive in the way that they worship. Or maybe somebody just wasn't expressing it enough and, and it just dragged you out because, you know, here you are ready to worship God and this person two rows in front of you just can't take their hands out of their pockets and that just drives you up the wall. 
Or maybe they didn't show up in the right clothes. Or maybe they, they wore too many clothes or too little clothes. But whatever it is, there's something that you showed up and you felt like you were ready, you were prepared, and then bam, you're knocked out of that place. Did God change? Did God change? From the last time that you were worshiping him until this time that we got knocked out of that place or that we showed up blah, did God change? The answer is obviously no. Because he is unchanging. He's unchanging. He's unfailing. There is no shadow or variation in him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so do any of these things affect how great God is or how worthy he is of deserving praise? Worship in every sense of the word should be given to God always, regardless of how we feel about anything or anyone. Because it's not about anything else or anyone else. It is about God and God alone. But we allow the way that we feel to impact the things that we should already know, and it impacts the way that we act. And it impacts the way that we worship. And obviously, it shouldn't be that way. It should not be that way. You know, the, a little snippet from that Bible study that I, I was talking about, he, he's visiting this church in, in, in another state, and he's a, he's a pastor, and so he had just spoken at a conference, and he had uh, the weekend off, and so he had the opportunity to go to church with some friends, and, and so he was just a part of the congregation that day, and he says that there's this countdown, there's all this stuff going on, and, and then, you know, five minutes before the countdown starts, and then it gets to 10, 9, 8, 7, counts all the way down to zero, and just right on the moment of time, he says, the band began, and I was waiting for David Letterman at that point. I didn't know what was going to happen next, and then eventually the band did what it did, and then the person who was to lead the praise, his opening gambit was this. Hey, how do you all feel this morning? He says, well, that was enough for me. We could have had the benediction right there. That was so good. I thought, what kind of a New Testament question is that? How do you all feel this morning? If I told you how I feel, especially in light of the last five minutes, you would question whether I was even a Christian at all. So don't ask me that question. Ask me what I know. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. Ask me what I know to be a verity, to be true, that can deal with my soul. That's what I need. At half past eight on a Sunday morning, I'm barely ambulatory. I can't start there with all the feel. You want me to say that? I just kicked the dog. I don't even have a dog. I got in an argument with someone because they took my parking space. I spilled my coffee. I didn't read my Bible. I'm a miserable wretch. And now you want me to start there? How do you feel? I feel rotten. That's how I feel. What do you got for me? The answer is nothing. I've got nothing for you. And that's why you have to start with the truth of the scriptures. The things that you know. The things that you know. And then we've got something to sing about. For we've been reminded of the truth that we've been ransomed, we've been healed, we've been restored, we've been forgiven. Now we're looking away from ourselves and we're looking out into Jesus Christ. And it is in this that we have something that fuels our praise. And I thought that is so true. That is so true. And it's something that, that actually began to... to 
to work on some of the ways that, that we put together our worship sets. Because sometimes I have been preparing this worship set and I've been having just this awesome time of worship just between me and God. And so I'm there, like I'm ready to start. We could start with the I love you and I, and I just want to spend time with you. I just want to be in your presence because I'm already there because I, I've, been, I've been rehearsing. I, I've been spending time worshiping Jesus. And sometimes I forget that the things that he's saying are true, that, that sometimes, because this isn't just for me, this is for us as a body, as a congregation. And it, it was a reminder that, that we need to start there. We need to start by, by being reminded of, of who God is, just his awesomeness. Apart from what he's done for us and through us, in us, we need to start with just him, who he is. And that's enough. Honestly, that, that should always be enough to fuel our praise. But then even beyond that, we can get into all the things that he's done for us, all the changes that he's made in us, all the things that he's doing through us, and it just continues to build. And that's where all of the emotion should come from. And there are times that I have been overwhelmed and overcome by emotion during worship. It's happened while I've been leading up here. It's happened while I've led in Bible studies. It's happened while I've been just a member of the body singing as somebody else is leading. There are times that I have been overcome with, with emotion during worship. But does that mean that those were the only true times of worship and all the rest of the times it didn't really mean anything? I don't think so. Worship still happens whether I felt some emotional rush, whether I felt warm and fuzzy inside, whether I felt anything, if I truly believe the things that I'm singing, then worship is taking place. If I truly believe the things that I'm seeing, the things that God has laid out in his word, then worship can truly take place. And that doesn't absolve the people that are leading worship of of responsibility. It doesn't mean that, oh, okay, well, we don't have to practice. We don't have to sing in key. We don't have to play in the right, the right key or the right notes or the right times, or, or we can just crank the volume or we can just mute everybody. It doesn't mean that we just have all this liberty to just do whatever, but it means that even in spite of all of those things, that worship can still take place because worship was not about any of those things. It's about the greatness of God. It's knowing versus feeling. What do I know about God? We say we believe in Jesus and that, that that's how we've entered into this family. And so we need to act like children of God even when we feel like the wretches that we know we are. We still need to worship God. And that brings us to our last point this morning, which is knowing God is faithful. Something that we know about God, knowing that God is faithful enables us to follow his will even in the midst of the storms. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying, and, and there's a couple of things that, that I want to point out to us here this morning. So in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36, it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. 
And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So do we even have to guess how Jesus was feeling at this point? I mean, he, he laid it out. He told the three that were there, he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And that's a feeling, right? I mean, that, that is a feeling. If ever there was a feeling, that is, that is it. That is a feeling. His soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And how many times have we felt something, maybe not even fully to that extent, or maybe even to that extent, but we have felt that. Just being overwhelmed. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. But notice the prayer in verse 39. He says, it says, he went a little farther and fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And notice that the feelings come through in Jesus' prayer to the father. The feelings come through. And so that's an exhortation. It's an example for us that we don't ignore the feelings, but instead of dwelling on the feelings, we take those feelings to our Father. We take those feelings to our Father. We share them with God in prayer. It's not that God didn't know. It's not like we can hide it and, well, you know, I, I don't feel like doing something, but I'm just going to put on a good face and, and maybe God will be fooled. No. You take those feelings to God. When we are honest in our prayers and when we are consistent in that prayer relationship, God is faithful to remind us of what we already know. He's faithful to remind us of how blessed we are even in the midst of whatever storm is going on in our lives. He's faithful to remind us of his faithfulness. That he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. But notice in verse 40 as it continues on, Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And isn't this what we've been talking about? The spirit, the things that we know from a spiritual understanding that have been granted to us by the Holy Spirit. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. But again, a second time, verse 42, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so another interesting thing for us to, to notice here, and, and that we can probably relate to, is that sometimes our brothers and sisters in Christ will fall short of what we ask of them in the midst of our struggles. Sometimes our brothers and sisters will fall short, and sometimes we fall short. And Jesus definitely let Peter know that they had fallen short, but notice that he didn't rail on Peter about it. He told him, and then after he presented the fault, then he exhorted Peter to focus on God, to watch and pray. He returned Peter's eyes to the Father. And so Jesus goes and he prays a second time about this heavy burden that he's about to endure. This is the worst thing that has ever happened to any man in the history of the world. This is heavy. Jesus is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And yet a second time, Jesus comes back and he finds them asleep when he returns. And sometimes that happens. 
Again, I'm not going to ask you to, to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever had something similar happen in your life? Where you, you've been approached by a brother or sister in Christ and they say, you know, can you pray for me? I, this is what's going on. And, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. And, and, you, and so you pray for them. And, and I'll be praying for you, brother. And then they, they walk away. And, and for you, it wasn't impactful. It wasn't like one of those things that, that you were going to remember. And then two weeks later, you see him again. And, oh, man, you offer up another quick prayer. God, I, I really hope that you're still working on that situation. And then that person comes up to you and, oh, how are you doing? And, well, brother, I've been praying for you, which technically is true because you prayed for them once and then you prayed for them again, so you have been praying. But the reality is that those two weeks, there was nothing that took place. That's not to, to throw you under the bus. It's just to remind us that we need to be aware when somebody is asking us for prayer, if they are taking the step to ask for prayer, then it is important. Then it is important, and it needs to be that way for us. It needs to be important for us. We need to be praying. We need to be faithful to pray for them in that. It's not just something that we say it and set it and forget it. You know, you, you pray, and then we need to add to that. We need to add more prayers to that. Continue to pray for them until you find out how that, that prayer was answered. You know, the, the reality is if somebody comes to you and, and they have a different prayer request every day and they, they don't let you know that that prayer has been answered, well, that list should just keep growing. But are we faithful to do that? The, the disciples didn't. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. But in verse 44, it says, So he left them, went away again, and he prayed the third time, saying the same words. And then he came to his disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so there, there's a change that took place here in, in what was about to happen. If you notice it, that his soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Obviously, even in the, the words that were prayed, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. So, I mean, we, I think we could fairly deduce from that that there was something that didn't feel good about what was going to take place. It didn't feel good. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But he got a response from the Father, and the response fueled an action because of the things that he knew. And so he says, behold, the hour is at hand. And then he says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. He's, he's not waiting around for it to happen. He says, okay, I've gotten the answer. Let's go and let's meet this storm head on. Let's meet this attack head on. I, I'm, I'm ready. I'm prepared now. And, and you say, well, how could you, how could you deduce that from that? Well, if you jump down to verse 51, suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And notice these next two verses. He says, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Jesus had received the answer, and there was strength in that answer. And it was that knowledge that fueled the action. 
The answer that Jesus had received from the Father is that this had to happen, and it had to happen because it was all part of the Father's plan, and it had even been foretold in Scripture. And so many times I have been guilty of allowing how I feel to have too much impact on how I act because I forget what I know to be true. Because I forget what I know to be true and because I fail to take those feelings of whatever, of inadequacy, of, of guilt, of, of not wanting to do what, what God has told me to do, of wanting to do something that God has told me not to do. I allow those feelings and I, I just try to battle with them on my own instead of taking those feelings to my Father in heaven who already knows that I am dealing with that and is fully enabled and empowered and prepared to help me in that, to help me win that battle. God has never set foot on a battlefield and lost. Never, not a single time. That means that every time that I have set foot on a battlefield and lost, I have done it in my own strength. And so every time that I fail to take those feelings to God and say, this is where I'm at, help me get where I'm supposed to be because of what I know to be true, because I know you to be true. That's when I fail. That's when the fall is great. And Jesus had gotten the answer. And we know God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. In Hebrews 13, verses 5 through 6, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, boldly, confidently, with full assurance, without, without any question, without any doubt, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. That is an awesome promise. And it is something that we know to be true. Because if you believe God is who he says he is, if you believe the word of God is true, then you know that he is faithful to everything that he has ever said. He's unchanging. And so when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, that means that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. When he says that he is faithful, when he says that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, when he says that there is no one else like him, that's what it is. We need to learn to go back to him. We need to go and to rely upon him. I would encourage you to, to read through Psalm 23, to be reminded of, of this beautiful picture of the shepherd and how that relates to our relationship with God. And let that be something that, that you commit to memory. I, I really, really believe that it is important and it is a, a wonderful thing. It is such a helpful thing to memorize scriptures, to memorize the word of God. And Psalm 23 is a beautiful one to be reminded of. But as we close here this morning, I want to leave you with three questions. The first question, what things do we know beyond all doubt? What things do we know beyond all doubt? What are the things that God has already spoken in his word that we know beyond all doubt? Well, obviously all of them, but what are the ones that we know because we've spent time in his word? What are the things that we know beyond all doubt? The second question is, do we allow the things that we know to outweigh what or how we feel? Do we allow the things that we know to outweigh, to be more important as they should be than how or what we feel? And the third one 
Will we be faithful to take our feelings to our Heavenly Father when we know that our feelings are wrong? Will we be faithful to take our feelings to our Heavenly Father so that He can remind us of who He is? So that He can remind us of who He is. If we are faithful to do these things, God is faithful to remind us of who He is. Remind us of the things that we know to be true. To teach us everything that is necessary in this life. And then, when the storms come, because they are going to come, when the storms come, we will be fully prepared because we have built this house on a firm foundation. We have built this house upon the rock, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen.